Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. We're going to finish this chapter today. Next week, Pastor Travis will be preaching a Palm Sunday sermon, so we're very excited about entering into Holy Week. And then, believe it or not, two weeks from today is Easter Sunday. Of course, it looks Eastery outside this morning, does it not? Right. And in recent weeks, we have discovered that spiritual gifts are a most excellent way. After all, when spiritual gifts are biblically exercised, some truly amazing things happen. Namely, God is glorified, the church is edified, good triumphs over evil, and believers live full or abundant lives. And we all want those things to happen, right? That's a mark of some exceptional activity of God in our lives. And so in light of these things, these results, spiritual gifts are certainly a most excellent way. However, While spiritual gifts are a most excellent way, spiritual gifts are not the most excellent way. And this came to light early in chapter 13 when the Apostle Paul gave us a mathematical formula. He said, spiritual gifts plus lovelessness equals zero. Spiritual gifts plus lovelessness equals zero. Because when you exercise spiritual gifts without love, you miss the point altogether. Because the point of spiritual gifts is to make God known, and God is love. So you cannot make God known through the exercise of spiritual gifts without love, which is why the Apostle Paul, after spending all of chapter 12 instructing us in spiritual gifts, he said in verse 31, and I will show you a still more excellent way, more excellent than just spiritual gifts. The even more excellent way than spiritual gifts is the way of agape love, which is defined as the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. And now today, Paul makes one final argument to support his thesis that love is the most excellent way. That argument begins in verse 8 of chapter 13. Would you please stand with me as we read the text today? 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13, it says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come together to engage your word this morning, we cry out to you for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you'd open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds to what your Holy Spirit would want to speak to us. I pray for your help this morning in preaching this text. Pray that they would be your words and not my own. And pray, God, that they would be delivered with love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So once again, the Apostle Paul is making one final argument to support his thesis that love is the most excellent way, and even more excellent than the way of spiritual gifts. And the first point of his argument is this. Love is eternal. Love is eternal. The very first words of our passage today state that love never ends. It goes on and on and on forever and ever and ever. You know, the Greek word here translated as ends is pipto. It's from that root pipto, which means to fall away, to fail, to be without effect, to cease to be in existence. All bad things. Examples of its usage in Scripture include um, the stars of heaven falling in Mark 13, 25. Flowers that fall or fade in James 1.11, and chains falling from hands in Acts 12.7. In each case, something is coming to an end. But in contrast, agape love, God's love, never falls away. It never fails. It never fades. Why? Well, because we read in 1 John 4.8, because God is love. And God never falls away, does he? God never fails, does he? And God never fades. Rather, he endures. And because he endures, love endures. As it says in Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Everlasting, uh, to everlasting, that pretty much covers it, doesn't it? There's nothing left from everlasting to everlasting. God has no beginning. God has no end. And so it is with love. This is part of the symbolism of the wedding ring, right? It's not just a fancy piece of jewelry. There's an important symbol here. They are perfect circles without beginning or end, just like God's love, which is eternal. But in contrast... Spiritual gifts, they're not eternal. Spiritual gifts are temporal. Therefore, love is superior to spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts will not go on forever and ever as love will. Spiritual gifts have an end point. Paul gives three examples of this. He chooses three spiritual gifts to demonstrate the fact that spiritual gifts are temporal. He uses the spiritual gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. These are his examples to show that spiritual gifts are temporal. Look at the second half of verse 8, where he says, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. 
So prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. Let's, let's briefly review how we defined these gifts a few weeks ago when we were working our way through chapter 12 and they appeared. First of all, we defined prophecy as the special ability to speak God's message. The special ability to speak God's message. You know, God wants to say something to someone through someone. And so he appoints to certain people the special ability, the spiritual gift, to hear his message and to pass it on to others. It may have to do with the future, or it may address the present. It may bring encouragement, or it may bring conviction. Likely, it will involve some kind of direction. But what must be made crystal clear is that the exercise of the spiritual gift of prophecy is not on a par with Scripture. Rather, the exercise of the gift of prophecy is always under the authority of Scripture and likely has to do with the personal application of Scripture. The next gift that Paul uses as an example here in verse 8 of the temporal nature of spiritual gifts is various kinds of tongues. We define that as the special ability to speak in unknown languages. And as we saw, there are, there are two kinds of tongues mentioned in Scripture. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, tongues are literally earthly dialects. These were given so that everyone gathered at Pentecost, at Jerusalem. They could, go, they could hear the gospel proclaimed in their own language and go home and to share it with others. But as we're going to see in the weeks to come in Acts 14, tongues is also a language all their own. A special tongue given for the purpose of prayer, worship, and edification. Again, we will look at that in much more detail um, after Easter. Then the third spiritual gift that Paul uses as an example in verse 8 is the utterance of knowledge, which is the special ability to bring God's knowledge. I believe that this is a specific type of prophecy. The Holy Spirit gives information to these folks with this gift that could not be known in any other way. God has some strategic purpose for revealing something specific in a certain situation, and so he appoints certain people with this gift to have that special ability to bring that knowledge to bear. The spiritual gift of the utterance of knowledge. Now, we might ask the question, it's like, okay, well, of all the spiritual gifts that Paul could have chosen um, as examples of the temporal nature of spiritual gifts, why would Paul choose prophecy, tongues, and knowledge as those examples in verse 8? I think the reason is because, as we've seen throughout chapter 12, these were gifts that were being elevated in importance in the church in Corinth. They were all emphasizing the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Therefore, they were highly coveted, highly emphasized, while the importance of other gifts was being minimized. But at the end of the day, Paul says to the Corinthians, and he says to us, hey, as wonderful as the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are, and they are wonderful, they are secondary to love. Why? Well, because in this part of his argument, love is eternal, while those gifts are temporal, they will in fact pass away. But the question we need to wrestle with for a moment is when? When will this happen? When will spiritual gifts pass away? The answer is that these will pass away when the perfect comes. When the perfect comes. Look at verse 10. 
He says, when the perfect comes, the partial spiritual gifts will pass away. So what does that mean, when the perfect comes? Well, the the truth of the matter is that it is the topic of much conversation in the commentaries. If you crack open a commentary on 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10, lots and lots written there. Here are some of the ideas of how people think this is uh, being explained when it comes to the perfect. Um, Number one, some people think that the perfect refers to the end of the apostolic age. According to this view, the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, these were sign gifts that were only operational during the ministry of the apostles. These gifts authenticated their ministry. And so when the apostles passed away, so did these gifts. No longer had any need or use for them. But here's the thing. Our text today says that these gifts will pass away when? When the perfect comes. Well, in what sense did the perfect come at the end of the apostolic age? I would argue that it it didn't. It hasn't. And so I don't think this is what is meant, um, number one, at the end of the apostolic age. Others argue similarly that the perfect refers to the completion of the canon of Scripture. The completion of the canon of Scripture. You see, before believers had the Bible, they needed prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. But now that we have the Bible, we don't need these gifts anymore. But church, as much as I love the Bible, and I hope that that comes through on a regular basis, I love God's Word, I don't think that is what is meant when the perfect comes either. Now, it should be noted these first two arguments are consistent with the position held by cessationists, right? We talked about the difference between cessationism and continuationism a few weeks ago. Cessationists are those who believe that such sign gifts are no longer in operation today. And so they would perhaps fall in one of these two first two arguments. A third position on what is meant by the perfect is the rapture. The church... Gloriously taken to heaven, taken out of the earth, ushering in the tribulation here on earth. But based on our study of Revelation that was not too long ago, as wonderful as the rapture will be for the church, um, that period in salvation history is not yet perfect. It's a process. Things are going on. There are good things like the rapture that are happening and the, the wheels are in motion, but I don't believe that that is quite yet what is meant by the perfect. And I actually believe that the spiritual gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge will be operational in the lives of those who come to know Christ during the tribulation. Well, then perhaps the perfect refers to the second coming of Christ, His glorious appearing when He returns to earth and sets up His millennial kingdom. I think we're getting closer But I still think that's what is meant by the perfect, because even during the millennial kingdom, there's a few loose ends that have to be tied up. Ultimately, I believe that the perfect is what is known as the eternal state. The eternal state. That which is described in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. We read in Revelation 22, verse 3. Oh, this gives me goosebumps. All right, you ready? No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, 
and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now that, my friends, sounds like the perfect, right? What is it that makes the perfect perfect? I believe it's the yellow highlighting here. We will see his face. We will be perfectly in his presence. Now, I believe there are two conclusions to draw from this. Number one, spiritual gifts, including prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, will continue until the eternal state, that which is perfect. And again, I know there are those of you who are cessationists. I am a continuationist, and this is one of those issues where we may need to agree to disagree. It's not a primary issue. It's important, but it is a secondary issue. Um, But where I would draw my conclusions from the text is that spiritual gifts, including prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, will continue until the eternal state, that which is perfect. I believe that's what our text is telling us today. They will continue to be manifestations of God's Spirit here on earth, as we learned in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. And then conclusion number two from this, spiritual gifts will not be needed in the eternal state, as manifestations of God's presence, because there we will see him face to face. We won't need prophecy. We won't need tongues. We won't need knowledge. Because of all, because all of that and more will be present in the very presence of God himself. We won't need earthly manifestations of God's spirit we will have God himself. But until then, while we are here on this earth, spiritual gifts provide for us a partial experience of what the eternal state will be like, which leads into Paul's next point, which is spiritual gifts are partial. Spiritual gifts are partial. Look at verse 9. He says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Here on earth, we are finite. Any argument with that? We are made of dust. Not only are we finite, made of dust, but we are sinful creatures who by God's grace alone are able to at least partially engage an infinite, holy God. Does that stagger you? There are presently limits to how fully we experience God's presence and exercise spiritual gifts. As our text says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, our current experience with spiritual gifts is partial, And Paul then uses three more illustrations to support this point. First, he says that our earthly exercise of spiritual gifts is like a child. We're like children. I I feel that, right? I feel that. Verse 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, here's what's going on here, and if you look at each one of the 30 examples he's giving, he's going to talk about our partial 
and imperfect exercise of spiritual gifts here on earth in contrast to the eternal state when the perfect comes. Here he's saying that, hey, guess what? While we are here on earth exercising spiritual gifts, partially we are like children. But one day when the perfect comes and we're in the eternal state, that will be like we have reached full maturity, full adulthood. Now versus the eternal state. In the now, as we operate in our spiritual gifts, we are like children. We mean well, but we don't always do well. We make mistakes, we learn, we grow, we mature. And so it will be in the exercise of spiritual gifts. We will only arrive at ultimate spiritual maturity in the eternal state when the perfect comes and we see him face to face which is the point of the second illustration of the partial nature of spiritual gifts are on earth. It is like a mirror, he says. Our earthly exercise of spiritual gifts is like a mirror. Look at verse 12. For now we, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. See, there's that contrast. It's now versus then. Partial in our experience with spiritual gifts and exercise of them versus when the perfect comes. Paul's illustration of a mirror would have gotten the attention of the Corinthians. For you see, Corinth was famous for the production of the finest of mirrors in the ancient world. But they're not like our mirrors, right? Our mirrors tend to be made of what? Glass, right? Maybe that's not true. What are mirrors made out of? Are they? I guess I should know better, right? But as you can tell, these mirrors in Corinth, they're not like our mirrors. These are made out of polished bronze or some other metal. And so when, when you look at these mirrors, you get only a dim reflection of the person's image. Not a clear image. It's a dim image, even a distorted image. And Paul's point is, hey, that's how it is in the now with spiritual gifts. Just as the image in a Corinthian mirror is partial, so our exercise of spiritual gifts here on earth, it is partial. It's going to be somewhat limited, even somewhat imperfect. Why? Because again, we are finite and we are sinful. But that will all change in the eternal state when it says, but then we will see clearly because we will see him face to face. Paul's third illustration has to do with knowledge. Spiritual gifts are partial, like a human brain, like a human brain. Look at the second half of verse 12. He says, now I know in part, then when the perfect comes in the eternal state, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now I know in part. That's even more true as we get older, isn't it? Our brains don't quite function like they used to. They don't fire like they used to. We have trouble remembering some things. We aren't as nimble mentally as we once were, so we get inundated with TV commercials for stuff like this. Right? Anybody using that, by the way? No judgment. I'm just curious. Does anybody? Man, those commercials are on all the time. 
Um, or fish oil. I guess fish oil is supposed to be good for the brain as well. But why do we need these things? Well, we, apparently we need these things because, again, our human brains, um, they know in part, and as we get older, they know even less. That's just kind of how it works here as finite, sinful creatures in the now. So it is with spiritual gifts. But as the text says, now I know in part, but then when the eternal state is, when perfection comes, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Again, when will that happen? In the eternal state when we see him face to face. Well, Paul takes one more shot at demonstrating the superior character of love. He kind of does it as a brief add-on at the very end. He does so by saying that love is even the greatest of the virtues. Love is even the greatest of the virtues. Look at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but even the greatest of these, the virtues, is love. Three wonderfully important godly virtues, faith, hope, and love. And and here's an important distinction for us to make this morning between spiritual gifts and godly virtues. So we've been studying a lot about spiritual gifts, and we learned that spiritual gifts, um, not everybody has all the spiritual gifts, right? We're a body, and so God has some people be the leg, some has some people be the ear, some has God people be the nose. We each have a unique role to play in the body of Christ as He has ordained, as He has appointed to each one of us unique spiritual gifts. Virtues are not like that. Faith, hope, and love, these are meant to be universal. These are meant to be active in all of our lives. While specific spiritual gifts are appointed to certain individuals, 1 Corinthians 12, these virtues are to be present in everyone. So you're not exempt from faith, hope, or love by saying, well, that's just not my gift. All right, we are all to some measure to have faith, hope, and love. Now, I do believe there is a spiritual gift of faith, Those people, they just excel at looking to the future and having confidence in God that He's going to come through regardless of the circumstances. But none of us are exempt from the the virtue of faith. Faith, hope, and love, every believer is to operate in these virtues. However, in this pantheon of godly virtues, love is even at the top of those. Love is greater than faith. Love is greater than hope. And by this point, Paul has so thoroughly, intentionally, and convincingly demonstrated to the Corinthians, and I hope to us, that while spiritual gifts are a most excellent way, spiritual gifts are not the most excellent way. The most excellent way is the way of love. As demonstrated by the fact that love is eternal, while spiritual gifts are temporal, and spiritual gifts are partial. Love is even the greatest of the virtues. Now, let's move to application and let's ask the question, all right, how should we then live? How should we then live? Number one, first of three points of application this morning, run through the wall. Run through the wall. Now, what do I mean by that? The wall, as I'm using it here, is that place of exhaustion that endurance runners hit where they feel like they just can't go on. 
right? Some of you have run marathons, you've run long distances, and you, there's this very real thing called the wall. And you hit it, and it's just like, I can't go on another step. Now, the thing is, on the other side of the wall, if you get through the wall, pass through the wall, there is like a second wind that comes that's able to take you to where you need to go, to the finish line. But when you hit the wall, you're running on empty. You're not sure if you're going to be able to make it to the finish line. And likewise, some of you, in regard to love, you've hit the wall. You've hit the wall in your marriage. You've hit the wall with your kids. Maybe you've hit the wall with your parents, with your coworkers. And you know, maybe you've even hit the wall with your church. But today we are reminded that our God is from everlasting to everlasting, and He is a limitless supply of love in our time of need. Humanly speaking, you will hit the wall and you will not be able to continue. But with my God, all things are possible. And nothing would bring him greater pleasure and joy than for his children to cry out to him and admit their need and to say, God, I've hit the wall in my marriage. I can't go on. I don't feel it. God, would you be that limitless supply of love that I need to be able to continue on and to be the spouse that you intend for me to be? Give me love when I don't feel love. Go beyond the feeling to the volitional part of love where I'm able to to choose love, to choose sacrifice. Run through the wall because God will be there to see you through it and to see you to the finish line. He has every resource you need to run through the wall in any and every relationship where you are feeling depleted because love endures. Love endures. Next, number two, get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. What boat is that? It's the boat where you are safe and comfortable. Not taking any risks going to just stay where you are and ride it out until Jesus comes back, right? That boat where many of us are in regard to spiritual gifts, afraid that if we step out of the boat, we will fail and we will begin to sink like Peter did. You know the story of Peter in the boat. Um, and I love these slides, by the way. I found these and I thought, oh, those are great, all right? Um, while the disciples were at sea, Jesus comes walking to them on the water, which completely freaked the disciples out. They thought he was a ghost. Peter, on the other hand, he's got an idea. And in Matthew 14, 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And I think that just made Jesus very, very happy when Peter made that request. And then in Matthew 14, 29, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, And he walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. Can you imagine what that must have been like? The thrill, the exhilaration of walking on the water. But then, um, while the other disciples were, I'm sure, in the boat, cowering in fear, but then Peter took his eyes off Jesus, and he put them on the wind and the waves. He began to sink and cried out in terror until Jesus gently 
lifted him out of the waves. Now, my question for you this morning, was this a win or a loss, a success or a failure? I believe it's a win. Now, Jesus rebuked Peter and his lack of faith, but in the big picture of Peter's spiritual development, of his sanctification and his growth, I believe Jesus would say this was absolutely a win because Peter stepped out in faith and he learned a powerful lesson. He grew through this experience that we might look at and call a failure, but I think Peter is a great example of that child who steps out in the discovery and exercise of spiritual gifts. John Ortberg, he wrote a book um, years ago called, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Got to Get Out of the Boat. True? And I I believe that is true regarding spiritual gifts. If you truly are to discover and operate in your spiritual gifts, a class-like network can be a helpful starting point. I believe in that. I think that class is important. But at the end of the day, you got to get out of the boat. And sometimes succeed by failing like Peter did. The church must be a safe place for people to get out of the boat. Because people are scared. People are scared to get out of the boat. They're scared to fail. They're scared of criticism. And that leads to the third point of the application, is to be a cheerleader and not a critic. Be a cheerleader and not a critic. Give lots of grace and encouragement to those who take that step of faith to get out of the boat, especially when they fail. Imagine the disciples in the boat. They hurled all kinds of criticisms at Peter when he got out of the boat and then when he failed. But Peter, he's the one that walked on water, didn't he? And had that profound personal encounter with Jesus that the other disciples didn't have. You know what's interesting? Um, We tend to give a lot more grace to certain gifts than others, don't we? Do you think about it? I believe that I have the spiritual gift of teaching, but my exercise of this gift is in this life, in this world, it is partial, like a child, like a mirror, and like a human brain. And thankfully, you don't want to expect me to be perfect in exercising the spiritual gift of teaching. And you give me lots of grace. However, Do we or would we give the same grace to someone who steps out of the boat because they sense that perhaps God has given them the spiritual gift of prophecy? And if they were to say, you know what, I just have this sense that God is saying, and I need to share this message, but I'm not certain. They're getting out of the boat. They're, They're stepping out into the water. But then we later discover, you know what, that message wasn't entirely accurate. Do they get the same grace that the teacher does? Or do we require of them perfection? And see, it's it's that tension, it's that requirement of perfection that I believe holds many, many, many people back from getting out of the boat and determining and experiencing their spiritual gifts. Some of you might say, well, that would make them a false prophet. And I would say, no, that's not what scriptures mean by a false prophet. A false prophet is one who with evil intent prophesies to lead God's people astray, and that is in no way the same as a conscientious brother or sister who is young and growing in their imperfect exercise of the spiritual gift of prophecy. We are children, 
in the exercise of our spiritual gifts, looking into a dim mirror whose brains are finite and flawed, we therefore need to give to each other lots and lots of grace as we discover and operate in our spiritual gifts. Amen? So, we are to run through the wall, get out of the boat, and be a cheerleader. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning admitting our limitations, admitting that we are but dust, admitting our sinfulness, admitting that even in our best of intentions as we exercise spiritual gifts, we fall short, we are partial, and God, we um, again pray that we would be people who cheer one another on that we would be people who encourage others to get out of the boat. God, we have failed as a church if we think that what it's all about is to sit in safety and comfort in the boat and wait until you return. That is not the point, and that does not honor you. That does not give you glory. God, I pray that there'd be some Holy Spirit conviction this morning that would inspire people to get out of the boat. We love you. We thank you for being patient with us. Help us to be patient with each other, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.